Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We're continuing our evening series through the book of Romans. We're looking at Romans 12, verses 9 through 21 tonight. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to use the Pew Bible in front of you. You can find our passage on page um, 948 for our Pew Bibles. And as you turn there, uh, please note that as we look at our verses tonight, uh, we'll see a list of exhortations. Um, All of this really flows out of the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, that uh, having received the grace of God in Jesus Christ, being justified by faith and being made right with God through Christ, uh, then we are to live a certain life. We are uh, then to uh, present our bodies as living sacrifice and not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And you may wonder, well, what, what does that look like? And we saw a little bit of that last week as uh, Pastor Will led us through uh, verses 3 through 8. And then verses 9 through 21 will really kind of get into some of the details then of what a transformed life looks like. And we'll see the requirements of the Christian life tonight. So let's look now at Romans 12, beginning in verse 9. Let's hear the word of our Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As far the reading of God's word, would you please pray with me? Holy Spirit, we we trust you to be at work in this room tonight. As we look at this list of exhortations, I pray that you would apply them to our hearts and cause us, O Lord, to see your love for us and out of that abundance of love, help us to love those whom we live with whom we interact with at work, home, our neighborhood, wherever. And Lord, I pray that in all things that we would 
delight in you. I pray for your help in this tonight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever you meet somebody who's just become a Christian, it's a, it's a really fun time. And one of the fun things about such times when you're meeting someone who's brand new to the Christian faith is they start asking questions that perhaps you've not really thought of in quite some time. You know, questions like this, now that I'm a Christian, what do I do? How am I supposed to live? Well, we see in these verses, when you become a Christian, there are things that God expects of you to do, a certain way to live. This is one of those verses you could go to and say, well, here is a a list of things for you to begin doing. And actually tonight, this, this passage, it's not really long perhaps, and it doesn't seem so big in your Bible, but it's, there's a lot going on here. And we're not going to have time to cover uh, every detail, even though you may want to uh, know more about certain things. I'm happy to talk more about certain uh, verses and ideas here. But I, I want us, as we consider you know, the Christian life, after I've come to, uh, to, to new life in Christ, how do I live? What does God require of me? I want us to see this, that if you've been saved by the grace of of God in Jesus Christ, then you must present your body as a living sacrifice to Him. You may not be conformed to the world. You must be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And these verses tell us this is what a renewed mind looks like. This is what a transformed life looks like. In verses 9-13, through it tells us this is what your life looks like. You are saved into the faith, into Christ, and now you are brought into the church. And so you have this new relationship with all these other people, and they may seem strange to you at first, these other Christians, and you come and you worship together on Sundays, and, and, and you're required to relate to each other in a certain way. But also, God doesn't just take you out of the world. He brings you into the church, but there's a sense in which you are no longer of the world, but you're still in it. And so God instructs us in verses 14 through 21, this is how you are to relate to the world around you. And I, and I think that there's a, a key principle overriding or uh, kind of uh, uh, hovering over all of these verses here. And that key principle is love. We are to love. In verses 9 through 13, we are to love one another within the church. And in verses 14 through 21, we are to love those who are outside of the church. We are to love. And you may say, well, that, that really sounds like, you know, a Sunday school sort of talk, Ben. You know, I've heard this since I was a kid. Is this really so important? It seems pretty simple and elementary to me. But I want want to remind you that love is the posture that God takes towards you. That is the position that God has towards you. 
And because of His love for you, you then are to live out your life day to day. Living out a life of love. Romans 5 and verse 8 says this, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You begin to see that the love that we're going to look at here that God requires of you is not modeled on a worldly love. It is based upon a divine love. A love that comes from nowhere else but the heart of God. A love that comes from the heart of God. And so the transformation that the Christian experience experiences is born out of a love that is not of this world, but out of the heart of God. And so when we look at these verses, this list of exhortations, these to do this and do that, we begin to look at these and say, how can I possibly do this? It shouldn't take you long to realize this can only happen. I can only live my life this way if I have known the divine love of God in Jesus Christ. I feel like I could just sort of wish I'd recorded Bill's, Pastor Barkley's sermon this morning. It is recorded and I could just put up a video and y'all could watch it again from here on out. But this is the idea. The Bible is not creating something new in the New Testament. It's there in the Old Testament. God has loved you, and out of that love, you are to obey God in 1 John chapter 4. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so there's an underlying question as we begin to look at these uh, exhortations here, and that is this, have you been gripped by the love of God? Have you known the love of God in your life? Has that gripped your heart? Have you come to to grasp the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Because that is the context of the Christian life. And so now we're going to look at how the love of God ought to then play out in the Christian life. So we'll look first in verses 9-13. through 13. How then are we to love one another within the church? We'll look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. The love that you are to have for one another is to be genuine. Now that word genuine, I think it's a, a word that we all probably know pretty well. We we all want to be genuine people. We, we commend that to one another. What's interesting to me is that uh, the, the Greek actually, uh, the ESV has it translated genuine, but the Greek is telling us actually that our love is not to be hypocritical. It uses that word, hypocritical. We are not to be hypocritical in the way that we relate to one another. And you all know what it is to be a hypocrite. Nobody likes a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? It's someone who, who, who wears a mask uh, when they're uh, standing in front of you. 
And when they're no longer in front of you, they take the mask off and show their true selves. They'll present themselves to you one way when they're face to face, but in reality, their, their true thoughts, their true selves is somehow different and contradictory. For example, you know, you may, uh, after this, uh, this service, uh, if you're not, uh, if you're not coming under conviction of God's word and not repentant, you may be really nice to somebody you don't like here, and you may say some really sweet things, and then tomorrow you're going to text your friends gossiping about them. Did you, did you see the stain on Ben's tie? What a slob. Nobody told me. Nobody wants, you, nobody wants a hypocrite. And, and, and God tells us, don't be hypocritical when we are interacting with one another. We are to be genuine with each other. We are, our love is not to be superficial. It is to be real. It is to be honest. It is to be genuine. We are to take off our masks before one another as we stand face to face within the body of Christ. You may say, I, I don't know about that. I, you know, I, I don't really, I feel like the church is where hypocrites go. Everybody cleans up and they, they wear nice suits and ties or you know, they always shave at least on Sundays or whatever it may be. But if you've, if you've ever been born again in Christ, if you're a true Christian, you may wear a suit, you may wear a tie, you may look really nice and put on deodorant for Sundays, but you know what it's like to really be unmasked before God. To be naked before Him and to be exposed before God in all of your sinfulness. And then to be forgiven. Because Jesus Christ looks at your nakedness and He covers you with His own righteousness. That is love. And when you've known the love of God, yourself, doesn't that make a difference in the way that you treat other believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church? Yes, there, there uh, may be certain things that you may do to one another that are sinful. That happens. We have remaining sin. We are uh, not unaware of that. And yet... Your brothers and sisters in Christ have been loved by God for eternity, have been covered and washed by the blood of Christ, have been brought into the family of God. You and your brothers and sisters have the same Father, are brought to the same table, the same household, in the same way that Christ has covered you, so Christ has covered your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you must see each other that way. And so we are told here, let your love be genuine. Not only is your love to be genuine, but it is to be holy. Look at the second half of verse 9. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Our love is to be genuine. It is also to be holy. The love that we are to have for one another is not to be merely sentimental. Oh, you can have sentimental love for each other. We enjoy shared experiences and fun times together, but 
But our, our, our love is to be born out of knowing what is good and evil and hating what is evil and, and holding fast to what is good. There must be a, a holy love for what is good and godly and a holy hatred for that which is evil and ungodly. And so that means, in part, what that implies for us is that we are to love one another well enough to be able to speak truth to each other and to spur one another on towards holiness. Not to look at our sin and just sort of applaud it and say, well, good for you and I'm happy for you. I just want you to be happy. But to call out sin. Not out of some sort of you know, satisfaction, oh, look at you. You've sinned and I didn't sin here. I succeeded where you failed. That's not what's being talked about here. But actually out of love for your brother and sister. Out of a desire for them to grow more into Christ. Paul says elsewhere that we are to to carry one another's burdens and to pursue godliness in each other, not just for yourself. This is a different kind of love than what the world will advertise to you, isn't it? It's not the kind of love that simply you know, tolerates or embraces the sins that we have in, in each other. You know, we, we're told you, know, you, you can't tell somebody else they're a sinner. You just have to accept them for who they feel themselves to be. But rather, out of love for God with wisdom to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect, we are to urge one another on towards godliness, towards holiness, towards the One who has brought you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. We are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds that we become people who seem and appear to the world that we are from some other planet. Because we are to love one another in the way that God has first loved us. The world will advertise love to you, but those who have been beaten up by the lovelessness of this world should find the love within the church to be a sweet and healing balm to their souls. To be unmasked and true. Verses 10 through 13. They talk about this love that we are to have for one another, this genuine love, this holy love, is something that we are to pursue with a passion. It is something that we are not supposed to just simply, yeah, this is kind of a principle we live by, but this is something that we passionately pursue. It's, it ought to be important to each of us. These verses, verses 10 through 13, what they tell us is, they say, do not be, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Don't be lazy about it. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Show hospitality. Look for ways to show hospitality. What these are saying is, these are verses they're telling us, go fast and furious in your love for each other. Keep going with a wholehearted, unreserved service to Jesus Christ in your love for one another. God says this is how you are to treat your brothers 
and sisters whom I've adopted into my family. That is the relationship we are to have with one another. And then in verses 14 through 21, speak to the relationship then when we have with the world around us, with non-Christians. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. You look at verses 9 through 13, he said, I'm already exhausted thinking about how I'm supposed to go 100 miles per hour loving my brothers and sisters in the church. And now is this telling me to bless those who persecute me? Yes. Our attitudes towards non-believers, not just non-believers, but actual enemies of the church who seek you harm, is to love them. Is to bless them. And just consider for a moment that word bless. And what does that mean? Oh, bless my, oh, bless your heart. Well, it can mean different things, can't it? Um, speak about blessing God sometimes. In worship service, we, we talk about blessing God. What we're doing is that we are giving Him the praise that He is due. We bless God when we worship Him rightly. Also, there can be a sense in which God blesses us. And that's different, isn't it? He's, he's not praising us in ways that we deserve. We don't get what we deserve. We've seen that over and over again in Romans. Actually, He is when He blesses us, He gives to us much better than we deserve. That is blessing, isn't it? And God has blessed you. What does it mean then when we bless others? When we bless others, we are asking that God would give His blessing to them. We are asking for those who persecute me, God, would you bless them? It's interesting how we are told to treat those who persecute you. To be under persecution assumes an unjust treatment. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. It can happen. It has happened. It's happening in the world today where there are people who are actively out seeking to harm and kill believing Christians simply Because they love the Lord Jesus. There are people who can be against you merely because you are a Christian. And the Apostle Paul tells us that when we look at those people, we are to pray, God, would you bless them? Would you bless them? Now that's a heavy demand, isn't it? We might look at the commands to love our fellow believers and say, okay, I know what it's like to be around Ben, but I can suck it up. I, I'll try to be genuine with him. I'll, I'll try to be honest. I'll, I'll try to urge him towards holiness. At least he's a brother in Christ. But how can I look at those who are trying to harm me? And my people and seek to bless them. God, are you really? 
not only asking me to do this, but you are exhorting me to do this. You are telling me this is how I am supposed to think and act and treat those who hurt your people. How can this possibly be done unless you've been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ? I don't see any other way. There's no other way that you can think about this unless the Holy Spirit has entered your heart and made you new and has transformed your mind. But when you're in the midst of that, do you ever think about, you know, at night when you're going to bed and you're just like, ah, oh, that person at work, I just, I would love it if they got fired. You ever remember Jesus blessing his persecutors? Hanging there on the cross? Looking down at the angry mob and saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus blessed his persecutors. And you too were once an enemy of Christ. He blessed you by rescuing you out of the kingdom of darkness. Bringing you into his household. Making you a son of God. A brother of the Savior. And he now turns to you and says, you too must take up this same posture towards the world. And then he says in verse 15, not only are you to do that, but we are to, to identify even with the, the needs and the feelings and the emotions of those who are against Christ. It says in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You look at those and, first of all, actually think of the weeping part being the easier thing. I'm not saying it's, it's easy, but, you know, when you see somebody else in sorrow and in pain, it... You start to feel bad for them. We start to empathize with them. We don't really delight in their sorrows. And actually, that's what this verse is saying. Do not delight in the sorrows of God's enemies. Do not delight in the sorrows. Okay, okay, I get it. If, if they're in pain, if they have loss, I, I, I feel with, for them. But then think about, he says, but rejoice with those who rejoice. Really? I mean, can a UNC fan be happy if Duke wins the national title? Just seeing if you're still awake. And, but I'd make it personal so you really get it. How are you supposed to feel when someone else is receiving the success that you believe you ought to have? That ought to be mine, God. And when that jealousy and that Hatred begins to poke its head out in your hearts. We must remember that we're supposed to bless those who persecute you. Bless those who seek your harm. We need to love your neighbor in such a way that we actually enter into their rejoicing as if it is our own. That's what this is saying. To rejoice as if their rejoicing is ours. And these verses are telling us this is, these are the marks of Christian transformation. Of Romans 12, 1 and 2, this is what that looks like in your day-to-day life. 
So what it looks like not to be conformed to the world, but be, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that to be marked at the very fabric of your soul, to be so marked by the grace of Jesus Christ that you, you view yourself and you view everyone else around you in the church and outside of the church with godly lenses. Even in cases when you have been unjustly treated, it happens. And God says, bless those who persecute you. Now that's not the end of the story. Verses 17 through 21 speak to how justice belongs to the Lord. And he says, that doesn't belong to you. You may want it, but leave the justice part to God. Because He will bring justice. He will. Your place, Christian is to put your trust in God and seek to obey Him. To love others, even those who do not deserve your love. Those who persecute you do not deserve your love, but God tells you to give it. See, what we see in these verses is that the relationship of the Christian to the unbelieving world calls for the believer to be on some level a suffering believer. That is your calling in this life. On some level, you are called to be a suffering believer. And as much as none of us really like that idea that I might have to suffer for my faith, God has shown throughout history that this has yet been His way. Somehow, for some reason, in the wisdom of God, it is through suffering that He brings about His plans. And a chief Chiefly, we see that in Christ, don't we? Jesus, our our Savior, going to the cross, suffering. It is through His suffering that we find our salvation. The hope of eternal life. The forgiveness of sins. Fellowship with God. We see also, look at church history, the, the church was spread across the world. It was established first by the suffering ministry of the apostles. Who would have signed up if if somebody told you in your job description, follow me for three years, you're going to be confused, Uh, you're not going to get it, and then you're going to be, uh, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and everybody's going to try to kill you, and you will be killed for preaching about me. That's what they do, and the church is established. They had a hard life. And then we see the church spread across the world, not by conquering other nations by the sword. That's not how the church has grown, but it's through the suffering of believers by the persecution of the world. God brings more to Himself, and He he establishes His church, and He brings glory to Himself. And He conquers an unbelieving and dark world in this way. And you think, well, that was distant history. But I want to tell you, it's not distant history that proves this. In my lifetime, there's a man I met in Uganda who became a Christian through an event that reminds me of all of this. In the 70s, there was an American missionary who was in Uganda. And in the 70s in Uganda, there was a, a man called Idi Amin who was terrible. And he was killing so many of his uh, people in that country. He was a dictator and he 
brutally killed lots, including people because uh, he, killing Christians simply because they were Christians. He was persecuting the church. And during this time, there was this missionary, this white American missionary was there, and he had together this group of teenagers. And they were reading the Bible, they were praying, they were singing. This was, this was a youth group. And uh, the authorities came and they, they captured this youth group. And some, for some reason the missionary was spared. But, but all of the Ugandan boys and girls were rounded up and tied together. And they lit a fire and burned all of them to death. After that terrible and tragic event, the missionary was utterly broken. It seemed his whole world had collapsed. I mean, you can only imagine his despair, grief, perhaps anger. I wonder if he felt like some other missionaries back in those days, they picked up weapons and they joined militias and fought against the government then. Perhaps that crossed his mind. But he didn't seek vengeance against the murderers. In fact, God didn't give him an opportunity to. Because shortly thereafter, there were some other Ugandans who came to his door, knocked on his door. And they came to him and they said, we saw those children who were burned alive and we know they were with you. This man thought they were coming to report me. And that I was going to be next. But then these people, they said, but we saw them. And as they were being rounded up and being killed, what we heard were they were singing hymns to God. And they had joy. We could see joy on their faces even as they were about to die. They were not afraid of death. We know they were your students. We want to have what they have. Even if that means that we die too. Would you bless those who tried to do that to you? What if that was our youth group? Would you... How would you feel about a government who would do that to someone that you know and love? Your children. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And yet in that place where the powers of darkness tried to swallow up the light, instead Christ's church flourished. Because of the testimonies, many testimonies like this, there was a huge um, revival in Uganda. And the missionary, instead of picking up an AK-47, he kept preaching. And more and more came to faith. Because they saw the truth of Christ. And they knew that it might cost them their lives. Or their families' lives. And yet they believed. And my friend whom I met is a result of that time. To follow these exhortations is a heavy, heavy demand. But what it shows us is that the requirements of the Christian life ultimately is that you must place your complete confidence in God. Not in yourself, 
but in God. To trust Him more than your impulses when it comes to how you relate with others within the church. And even those outside of the church who want your harm. God says this is the requirement of the Christian life. To really, really trust God. In the same way as you were first saved, so are you to live your life. By entrusting yourself, your life, how you relate to one another and the world around you. By submitting yourself completely and entirely to the God who has loved you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would help us to see these commands and Though we confess, I confess, I find them very hard. Remind us all of the great love that you have for us. And may it be our joy to submit our lives to you. Whatever the cost, whatever the requirement, even our emotions, Lord, belong to you. So help us in this, Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.